You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every Wednesday, head on over to your Apple Podcast app or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. Born somewhere between 1780 and 1786, he rose to be the celebrated chief of two tribes in the Pacific Northwest, the Suquamish and the Duwamish. He was a skilled leader, but against his best efforts, the lands held by his people were slowly eroded by rival tribes and an increasing flow of white settlers. One of the largest cities on the West Coast bears his name. He was a large, imposing man, given the nickname Big Guy by traders from the imperial conglomerate Hudson's Bay Company. His name was Seattle, and he is remembered most for his skills as an orator. It's said that during his addresses, his voice could be heard three-quarters of a mile away. Yet the only documented speech from Chief Seattle might not have ever happened. Let's get into it. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 28, The Speech. The areas around Seattle and the Puget Sound have been inhabited by various incarnations of the Duwamish tribe for about the past 10,000 years. The tribe itself was separated into two groups, known in the Lushitsi language as the Duwabish, or People of the Inside, who lived near Elliott Bay, and the Hachuabish, the People of the Large Lake, who lived near Lake Washington. The people of the large lake had a strong cultural bond with the Hachuabash, the people of the small lake, who surrounded Lake Union. The land that is now Seattle was home to 13 distinct and important villages inhabited by these groups. The rich ecology of the Pacific Northwest provided ample food, and in times of shortage, communities with a surplus engaged in a potlatch ceremony. The name comes from the word gift in the nearly extinct and extremely limited Pacific Northwestern pigeon trading language, Chinook jargon, which is relevant in a little bit. The Duwamish were in seemingly perpetual conflict with the stronger Snohomish tribe, and as time dragged on, the Duwamish lost progressively larger parts of their land. But suddenly, a new player emerged on the scene. The settlement that would become Seattle was founded on November 13, 1851, with the arrival of a group of pioneers from Cherry Grove, Illinois, led by Arthur Armstrong Denny. It was called, appropriately, the Denny Party. The group settled at Alki Point, which became a very divisive decision among the pioneers. You see, two members, John Lowe and David Denny, had scouted ahead early, They were later joined by Leander Terry, and while constructing a cabin, Lowe and Terry laid claims to all of the land at Alki Point. The next year, Arthur Denny split from the group and teamed up with his rival, David Doc Maynard, to form a new settlement in Elliott Bay. Denny and Maynard's settlement blossomed into what is now the heart of Seattle. The early settlements at Alkay Point and Elliott Bay made a name for themselves by providing lumber to a booming city further south that seemed to keep burning down, San Francisco. 
the woods around Seattle were home to what's called a climax forest. It was populated with trees up to 2,000 years old and up to 400 feet tall. Today, no trees that large can be found anywhere on Earth. After 1850, white settlers started arriving in the Puget Sound area in droves. As one might expect, this resulted in a pretty terrible relationship with the natives. Author Bill Speedle writes in his book, Sons of Prophets, that, quote, The general consensus of the community was that killing an Indian was a matter of no graver consequence than shooting a cougar or a bear. One of the few exceptions to this claim was embodied in Doc Maynard, who, while no means progressive by today's standards, maintained a cordial relationship with the native people and became a good friend of Chief Seattle. The government of the Washington Territory went to great lengths to mistreat the native population. The governor, Isaac Smith, made oral promises to the natives that he never fulfilled. The natives of the Pacific Northwest live within an oral culture, and they took this word to be binding law. The government then procedurally pacified scores of tribes through a series of deliberately misleading and provocative treaties, Medicine Creek, Elliot's Point, and Walla Walla in 1854, 1855, and 1855, respectively. On January 25th, 1856, Governor Stevens said that, quote, the town of Seattle is in as much danger of an Indian attack as are the cities of San Francisco or New York. On January 26, 1856, the natives attacked Seattle. The skirmish, appropriately known as the Battle of Seattle, was part of the Greater Puget Sound War and ended after only one day. There were two known fatalities among the settlers and unknown casualties among the natives. Both sides took a break in the fighting for dinner. Due to his friendship with Maynard, who had just recently changed the name of the town to Seattle, Chief Seattle kept his men from attacking. But I've been talking for a bit now, and so far I've made no mention of a speech. And after all, that is the title of this episode. So let's get into it. The content of Chief Seattle's speech is hotly debated with some believing that the speech never took place at all. There are at least 86 different versions of what he supposedly said. Some allege that it was a speech, while others, a letter to President Franklin Pierce. Nobody has any definitive proof either way. The first transcript of the speech that supposedly took place in 1854 appeared in an 1887 issue of the Seattle Sunday Star. It had been transcribed by Henry A. Smith an early settler of the area who rose to prominence in the community as a doctor and poet. The speech was supposedly made when the newly minted Governor Isaac Stevens visited with tribal chiefs around Seattle, and we know that that meeting definitely did happen, but we have no record of what was said there. The preface of the speech is a response to a government offer to buy the last of the Duwamish lands, even though we don't know for sure, it seems like Stevens visited with these chiefs to inspect lands that the United States already considered theirs. Moreover, nobody was ever able to corroborate the claim that Smith was in attendance at this meeting. But there is one issue with the speech that is far bigger than the others, and that's the way that it was written. The first transcript, known as the Smith Version, 
is an incredibly beautiful, elegant, and sentimental plea for environmental respect and native rights. But there's one problem. Chief Seattle did not speak English. He most probably spoke Lushaseed, and whatever he did say in that 1854 meeting would have been translated to Chinook jargon before it would have been translated into English. There is no evidence to imply that Smith spoke Lushatseed, and Chinook jargon is so limited in its vocabulary that there are a large amount of words in the final English translation that simply don't exist. The National Archives believes the speech to be fictional. So there seems to be a lot of evidence saying that this speech was fabricated, right? Well, maybe not. A representative from the Squamish Nation said that in accordance with their traditions, Smith consulted the tribal elders multiple times before publishing the original transcript. They in fact claimed to have seen the notes he was taking during the speech. If these notes did exist, they don't anymore. Smith's office burned down in the Great Seattle Fire of 1889. Since that original publication, Smith's version has become incredibly famous. Dozens of scholars who believe that the speech has true historical roots have made attempts at producing a version that more accurately captures the voice of a mid-1800s native chief. This usually entails removing the elegant Victorian turns of phrase found in the Smith version. It is worth noting that there are a number of famous quotes attributed to Chief Seattle. They're all quite erudite and clever, but given the language barrier between Seattle and the settlers, it is also unlikely that these were his words. We will probably never know if the contents of the Smith transcript have any bearing on Seattle's actual words, or if he ever even made a speech at all. But ultimately, in my opinion, whether or not the speech is real doesn't really matter. It is an incredibly beautiful and emotional plea for human decency and environmentalism that's taken a life of its own. But I couldn't base this whole episode around it without actually letting you hear the speech. So, without further ado, here's the text from the original 1887 Smith transcript. Yonder sky that has wept tears of compassion upon my people for centuries untold, and which to us appears changeless and eternal, may change. Today is fair, tomorrow it may be overcast with clouds. My words are like the stars that never change. Whatever Seattle says, the great chief at Washington can rely upon with as much certainty as he can upon the return of the sun or the seasons. The white chief says that the big chief at Washington sends us greetings of friendship and goodwill. This is kind of him, for we know he has little need of our friendship in return. His people are many. They are like the grass that covers vast prairies. My people are few. They resemble the scattering trees of a storm-swept plain. The great, and I presume good, White Chief sends us word that he wishes to buy our land, but is willing to allow us enough to live comfortably. This indeed appears just, even generous, for the red man no longer has rights that he need respect, and the offer may be wise also, as we are no longer in need of an extensive country. 
There was a time when our people covered the land as the waves of a wind-ruffled sea cover its shell-paved floor. But that time long since passed away with the greatness of tribes that are now but a mournful memory. I will not dwell on, nor mourn over, our untimely decay, nor reproach my pale-faced brothers with hastening it, as we too may have been somewhat to blame. Youth is impulsive. When our young men grow angry at some real or imaginary wrong and disfigure their faces with black paint, it denotes that their hearts are black, and they are often cruel and relentless, and our old men and old women are unable to restrain them. Thus it has ever been. Thus it was when the white men began to push our forefathers ever westward. But let us hope that the hostilities between us may never return. We would have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Revenge by young men is considered gain, even at the cost of their own lives. But old men who stay at home in times of war, and mothers who have sons to lose, know better. Our good father in Washington, for I presume he is now our father as well as yours, since King George has moved his boundaries further north. Our great and good father, I say, sends us word that if we do as he desires, he will protect us. His brave warriors will be to us a bristling wall of strength, and his wonderful ships of war will fill our harbors, so that our ancient enemies far to the northward, the Haidas and the Timshayans, will cease to frighten our women, children, and old men. Then, in reality, he will be our father, and we his children. But can that ever be? Your God is not our God. Your God loves your people and hates mine. He folds his strong, protecting arms lovingly about the pale face and leads him by the hand as a father leads an infant son. But he has forsaken his red children, if they really are his. Our God, the Great Spirit, seems also to have forsaken us. Your God makes your people wax stronger every day. Soon they will fill all the land. Our people are ebbing away like a rapidly receding tide that will never return. The white man's God cannot love our people or he would protect them. They seem to be orphans who can look nowhere for help. How then can we be brothers? How can your God become our God and renew our prosperity and awaken in us dreams of returning greatness? If we have a common heavenly Father, he must be partial for he came to his pale-faced children. We never saw him. He gave you laws, but had no word for his red children, whose teeming multitudes once filled this vast continent as stars fill the firmament. No, we are two distinct races with separate origins and separate destinies. There is little in common between us. To us the ashes of our ancestors are sacred, and their resting place is hallowed ground. You wander far from the graves of your ancestors and seemingly without regret. Your religion was written upon tablets of stone by the iron finger of your God so that you could never forget. The red man could never comprehend or remember it. Our religion is the traditions of our ancestors, the dreams of our old men given them in solemn hours of the night by the Great Spirit the visions of our sachems, and is written in the hearts of our people. 
Your dead cease to love you and the land of their nativity as soon as they pass the portals of the tomb and wander away beyond the stars. They are soon forgotten and never return. Our dead never forget this beautiful world that gave them being. They still love its verdant valleys, its murmuring rivers, its magnificent mountains, sequestered vales and verdant-lined lakes and bays, and ever yearn in tender, fond affection over the lonely-hearted living, and often return from the happy hunting ground to visit, guide, console, and comfort them. Day and night cannot dwell together. The red man has ever fled the approach of the white man as the morning mist flees before the morning sun. However, your proposition seems fair, and I think that my people will accept it and will retire to the reservation you offer them. Then we will dwell apart in peace, for the words of the great white chief seem to be the words of nature speaking to my people out of a dense darkness. It matters little where we pass the remnant of our days. They will not be many. The Indian's night promises to be dark. Not a single star of hope hovers above his horizon. Sad-voiced winds moan in the distance. Grim fate seems to be on the red man's trail, and wherever he will hear the approaching footsteps of his fell destroyer and prepare stolidly to meet his doom, as does the wounded doe that hears the approaching footsteps of the hunter. A few more moons, a few more winters, and not one of the descendants of the mighty hosts that once moved over this broad land or lived in happy homes protected by the Great Spirit will remain to mourn over the graves of a people once more powerful and more hopeful than yours. But why should I mourn at the untimely fate of my people? Tribe follows tribe, and nation follows nation, like the waves of the sea. It is the order of nature, and regret is useless. Your time of decay may be distant, but surely it will come. And even the white man whose god walked and talked with him as friend to friend cannot be exempt from the common destiny. We may be brothers after all. We will see. We will ponder your proposition, and when we decide, we will let you know. But should we accept it, I here and now make this condition that we will not be denied the privilege without molestation of visiting at any time the tombs of our ancestors, friends, and children. Every part of this soil is sacred in the estimation of my people. Every hillside, every valley, every plain and grove has been hallowed by some sad or happy event in days long vanished. Even the rocks, which seem to be dumb and dead as the swelter in the sun along the silent shore, thrill with memories of stirring events connected with the lives of my people and the very dust upon which you now stand responds more lovingly to their footsteps than yours, because it is rich with the blood of our ancestors, and our bare feet are conscious of the sympathetic touch. Our departed braves, fond mothers, glad, happy-hearted maidens, and even the little children who lived here and rejoiced here for a brief season will love these somber solitudes, and at eventide they greet shadowy returning spirits. And when the last red man shall have perished, and the memory of my tribe shall have become a myth among the white men, these shores will swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe, 
and when your children's children think themselves alone in the field, the store, in the shop, along the highway, or in the silence of the pathless woods, they will not be alone. In all the earth there is no place dedicated to solitude. At night, when the streets of your cities and villages are silent, and you think them deserted, they will throng with the returning host that once filled them and still love this beautiful land. The white man will never be alone. Let him be just and deal kindly with my people, for the dead are not powerless. Dead, did I say? There is no death, only a change of worlds. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.